engage and show sincere interest in what people are doing, right? You know, I think I've heard some of your other guests talk about put down the phone, right? Put down the phone and, and look at the individual, right? It's be engaging and build relationships with people that you work with to understand, A, their challenges and B, their successes and celebrate those, right? Help them work through the challenges, celebrate the successes. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by Inveris. Before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show by taking a moment to leave a review in iTunes. It always helps me figure stuff out, how people like it, and it also helps other people find the show. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN laptop hard hat stickers, check out the show notes for a 60-second survey. All right. Well, I'm sitting here this afternoon with Robert Latimer, Principal of Right Away Land and Compliance. How are you this afternoon, Robert? Oh, good, Paige. I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day here in Omaha, Nebraska, and I couldn't be better. Perfect. Well, let's, you know, get to know about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Well, it's a long story with lots of twists. I'll try and kind of keep it abbreviated. Oh, no. Tell us all the deets. I need <laughs> to know all the details. <laughs> so I thought about this a little bit. You know, I grew up in West Central Alberta, kind of west of Edmonton. My dad was in the coal mining industry out there. And, you know, my start really was as a young person, we used to go out with my dad when he was on call as a manager to this open pit coal mine. And this was in the mid 70s. And we would get exposed to all kinds of stuff that was going on at this mining operation. And I think I picked up some leadership styles from my dad in that regards as well, as he kind of went around the operation on the weekend, checking in with all the employees there and so on. And so that was really my first exposure to the energy industry was in a mining sense. So yeah, that was kind of cool. I did grow up in an area where there was a lot of oil and gas activity, deep sour wells, oil production, sweet natural gas coal mining, logging, all this kind of stuff. So it was a real robust area of West Central Alberta that I grew up in. And, you know, a lot of people just simply referred it to the oil patch or the patch, right, to be yeah. really short. And so that was my exposure. I went away to school to be learn how to be a surveyor. I wasn't too great at math. And so <laughs> I, yeah. And so I transitioned to another a program where I learned to be a land agent, essentially. I went to a two-year program in an ag college in Alberta to be a land agent in the energy industry and spent my initial four years doing that in a natural gas transmission business called, at that time, it was Nova Gas Transmission. And they operated a very extensive natural gas pipeline system in the province of Alberta, gas gathering and transmission of that product to markets. And did that operational land role for four years. That was really cool. Traveled a lot through East Central and North Central Alberta, dealing with landowners and all 
and operational land issues. And that was fun. Moved into more of a leadership role. And at that time in the early 90s, some companies were adopting this team leader type role, uh-huh. and, you know, working with teams of people and, and rather than telling them what to do and when to do it, it's, you know, what does the team think? And so I, I was exposed to that leadership style and then spent the next seven years really in operational leadership roles, either with administrative support team members in maintenance areas or directly with pipeline maintenance teams you know, providing the expertise to run those pipeline systems. And so that was pretty fascinating. It was a totally outside the land perspective. Yeah. It was really fascinating. And it exposed me to a lot of different managers, a lot of different team members with technical issues. And I, you know, Paige, I was a non-technical leader of a technical team, which is a bit of a challenge. And I embraced it, though. I'm a lifelong learner. I just learned as much as I could from the team members that I worked with. That's a lot to take on. Yeah. So in the moves that I did in Alberta, Canada, eventually there was some merger acquisition type stuff that went on. I ended up moving to the U.S. My wife happens to be an American citizen that immigrated to Canada We moved down to the U.S. I took a job with another natural gas pipeline asset and moved back into more of the operational land perspective or function for what was the PG&E gas transmission Northwest system, taking Canadian gas through Idaho, Washington, and Oregon to California and serving some markets in the Northwest. That was like the dream job, right? I was living in Central Oregon, working in a regional operational team. Kind of, there was two of us that split this role for the whole system. The company was 250 people. It was just like a really great job. And mergers, acquisitions happened and ended up working for a company called TransCanada, which then I had a longer career with them doing all kinds of different things. But in between, in between, I kind of spent, oh, I don't know, up until 2007, working away in the corporate life. And my wife and I got to a point in our career and that we stepped away from corporate work and we, we ended up kind of doing something totally different. We went to mainland China to serve as missionaries through the Lutheran Church for a year with her, with her, took our kids with us and had that experience for 14 months. And then I found my way back to TransCanada, had taken a leave of absence. And the job I took was working on the Keystone Pipeline in Nebraska. Ah, we all know how that turned out. Yeah, it was interesting, Paige. So the Keystone Pipeline, there's a lot of myths and a lot of facts around it. So I think I've heard Mark and you talk about this before that, you know, Mark really nails this. Two thirds or three quarters of the whole Keystone XL Pipeline is actually built and operating. They just wanted to expand that one last leg from Canada down through to Steel City, Nebraska, that's what really got caught up in the politics, right? So I spent from 2007 to 2020, really, working on the KXL piece from time to time. Occasionally, I would step away and do some different roles. But yeah, I've seen a lot of ground on that KXL project over the years. And in between it, like I said, did some different things. So I've done some regulatory compliance, some public education awareness, all kinds of things. Yeah, because there's kind of a grayer area between land and regulatory. You know, I've had to explain that a lot to people that land normally works on all operated 
property and whatever the company has interest in. And then regulatory compliance works with only operated. So. Yeah, I had a chance. You know, it sounds like you've done a little bit in your past as well. The regulatory compliance kind of field in the U.S. under 192 and 195, I believe it is gas and oil or hazardous liquids. I had a chance to lead a technical team for about eight months. That was a pretty fascinating experience. A lot of challenges there, some actual kind of people challenges and great things yeah. about working with people. But, mm -hmm. you know, the auditors, the FIMSA oversight is absolutely real, right? And you need to, you know, if it's not documented, it's not done. Where's the documentation? How do you pull it hey. out and audit and all that kind of stuff? Exactly. And I started offshore and then had to kind of dumb down a little bit for onshore. I wrapped up my career with, in the corporate world with TC Energy at the end of it. Uh, I wrapped that up June of 2020. Uh, kind of a funny story. I went into tell my then leader that I was going to retire at age 55. And, well, actually, it was June of 2020. I told her, gave her 90 days notice in March of 2020. And well, you know what happened? I ended up spending 90 days working at home because we were all sent home. Yeah. And so I had an idea to start my own business doing land and compliance, stakeholder outreach management. And I just, my timing just wasn't exactly perfect when I launched that in the COVID time period, but <laughs> it was what it is. And I carried on. Good, good. So let me ask you something. And this is something I've been curious about, especially when, you know, they took the permits away for the Keystone extension. Does the equipment just sit there? What happens? Yeah, Paige, great question. So, you know, a little bit of a history lesson here. Back in 2015, President Obama at that time, actually, they issued a denial for the permit in 2015. And we went through kind of a shelving exercise to go quiet on the project. And we're putting the bow on everything. But then there was a presidential election in 2016, right, that delivered yeah. an outcome that was, hey, let's, and the direction from that administration was, let's get going with it again. So TransCanada started everything up again and kind of took off from where they left off and they needed to work through some permitting type things in the state of Nebraska and different other issues. And they did get to the point in 2020, they did get to the point where they actually built some pump stations in Montana and South Dakota in the middle of nowhere, really on the route of the pipeline. TC Energy put some money at risk. They built some pipeline in the ground in Canada. They built the international border crossing. And then when President Biden, through executive order, when he revoked the permit, which he had the right to do, yeah. you know, I'm not going to get into the politics of right or wrong. He did it, right? So, yep. yeah, so that project, in my perspective, is shelved. And I think there would be little appetite to get into that again. But you never know. It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious if they just leave all the equipment there after they've, you know, like, you know, normally with a well, you plug and abandon that. Yeah. You know, Paige, I you're required have, to put plugs. So I've personally driven by some pump stations, a pump station in South Dakota that was probably 90% built is just sitting there connected okay. to nothing. Just sitting there. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess there isn't any kind of environmental issue with it just sitting there because there's nothing in it, right? Yeah. You know, eventually they'll have to probably act on 
doing something with it, but it's a significant, pump stations are a significant investment in pipe and motors and control systems. And there's a number of them just sitting out there, not connected to anything. And yeah. 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 I'm just curious how that works. I don't know a lot about pipelines and I've never really dabbled. All my work's been upstream. Yeah. So, yeah. So makes me extra curious of what's going on and how that was handled. TC Energy still, I believe, to some degree, still holds all their easements for the right-of-way. You know, they were, sadly, they had acquired almost all the easement rights for to build a pipeline. And I think they likely still hold some or all of that. But, yeah. It's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actionable intelligence and a single source of truth that brings all the data together. Eneverest is the energy specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only Eneverest has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at Eneverest.com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S.com. Well, and for the people that don't know, can you tell people what right-of-ways are and easements are? Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. So, if you go to any project or any developer looking to build a pipeline, a power line, frankly, solar energy project, wind project, you need to engage the landowners that hold the rights to the land. You need to engage them to get an easement or a lease and get your land rights purchased, or you pay compensation for that land right that they provide you in order to build the pipeline and so on. In most cases, it's always a voluntary type negotiation to get to that point. In some cases, we're required, very seldom used. There's the need to use what's called eminent domain, and that's a real flashpoint these days. And that's paying just compensation for the right to get access across someone's land where they don't want to give you that right. But any pipeline developer, power line developer, they'll always work very, very hard to get a voluntary easement in place in order to build their project. And then during the construction of that project, there'll be land agents assigned to watch over any issues related to construction and then the cleanup, there's payment for damages and so on. And then there's always the operational land issues long-term. You know, some of these assets are operating 60, 70 years. You need to maintain your rights on your asset that you have in the ground or in the air, if it's a power line or what have you. And so there's the operational land management that goes with those assets too. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about your current role as principal and all the different things you do. Yeah. So again, I started this little venture in June of 2020, really anticipating that I could market my skills. And I had a pipeline type focus, I guess, at that time. Well, guess what? In the height of COVID, it it was a little difficult, right? But I I worked away at building out a network of people that could provide me some feedback, some insight to industries. I realized fairly quickly that the renewable sector, there was a lot going on. And I was able to pick up some work contracting through another entity, acquiring 
land leases for large solar facilities in southern Minnesota. So I spent about 10 months traveling to and from Omaha to southern Minnesota, visiting with landowners, working to get deals in place for large solar facilities. And when I say large, you know, trying to acquire, say, a thousand acres in a large footprint of land and visiting with landowners to get options on agreements and so on. And that, as I got into that page, I kind of, it opened up a big world of learning for me to understand this energy transition that we're on. And I was kind of coming from a unique place, right? A little bit of experience with the coal industry, a lot of experience in oil and natural gas pipelines. And I just immersed myself in kind of energy transition stuff, even trying to understand, uh, you know, solar and wind and all that went with it. And it was, I found it pretty fascinating, actually. Right, right. I spent some time in Minnesota and then transferred to another client, did some wind leasing work in Illinois. And then I've circled back to be closer to home here in Nebraska. And I find myself now working for clients, providing land services, public engagement type services to clients that are either in solar siting type projects, in renewable natural gas pipeline projects, smaller projects, and even carbon dioxide pipeline projects as well. Oh, dude, tell me about that. I don't have any idea what that consists of. Yeah. And so there's some very large plays to collect CO2, carbon dioxide, from ethanol plants in the U.S. Midwest over like a five-state area. Upwards of one client I'm working for has, they want to connect up to 32 different ethanol plants. They collect the CO2 from those plants that use corn or soybeans to produce renewable fuels. The carbon dioxide is collected and then transported through a network of pipeline systems to be sequestered in rock formations in either Illinois or North Dakota, depending on which project you're in or Wyoming. Okay. And so the one client I'm working for on a part-time basis, essentially what I'm providing, the service I'm providing to them is engaging local government officials, county board members, board of supervisors in providing updates as to this one very specific project. And yeah, I think that's really good use of my time on as part-time. And I'm able to fit that in with some of my other client work. And I'm based in Nebraska, and so I know kind of the nature of the geography, the, you know, it just kind of works well, right? So, Right, right. Well, let's get into leadership. Yeah. I mean, you've kind of dabbled in all of that. You were exposed to that at a very young age. So what is leadership to you? Yeah, yeah. So I go back to that situation where we used to accompany my dad, who was a kind of a middle manager at a large coal mining facility union operation. And, you know, his style of leadership, and, you know, I'm thinking about this today, actually, he was a, a guy that would climb up on the equipment and we would follow him up there, right, onto the drag lines <laughs> or trucks or whatever. It was crazy. It was probably breaking a lot of PPE type OSHA rules. Yeah, was... <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you know, my dad just, he would just visit with people, right? Check how you doing, what's going on, what kind of issues you got today. Hey, is your kid playing hockey? Are you going to make that game tonight? He would just visit with the folks and try and understand what was going on. And, you know, some might call it management by walking around. I don't know what the term is, but he had a sincere interest on how people were doing, right? And I think to a little bit of degree, 
that played over into my leadership style when I started leading teams back in the early to mid-90s to early 2000 time period, and really just trying to understand how people were doing, what's going on in their life, how can we work together to achieve this result. And, you know, really kind of walking a mile in their shoes. And if I had to kind of walk with them, I did. When I was a non-technical leader of a technical team, I really had to double down and actually, you know, go out and turn the valve on the pipeline riser at four in the morning with the guys that were doing the outage on the pipeline to do some maintenance, you know, and or travel out with the guys to work on the compressor station and not, you know, not to turn wrenches the whole day, but just to kind of, you know, make that drive out there hour, hour and a half sometimes with them in the cab of the truck, really understand the nature of the work. And I think that was the people that I worked with, they kind of quickly realized, hey, what the heck is this guy doing out here, right? Like he's showing up and showing interest in our work. And yeah, he's asking questions about why are you doing it this way or whatever. But some of the other technical leaders, not all of them, but some of the other technical leaders, they had already done that. So they're not going out, right? And so that's how I differentiated myself was by walking a mile in people's shoes and walking with them to achieve results and understand the issues that they're facing. Yeah. I mean, how are you supposed to help someone do their job if you don't know what they're doing? Yeah. So yeah, totally get with that. So what's the hardest part about being a leader? Oh, you know what? So when you really engage people full on in the type of examples that I was giving you, some people might not like it, right? They think they could have been the leader or whatever. And, you know, I've had guys, I'm very memorable. I had this guy call me up eight o'clock on a Friday night. And I think he'd had a few road pops and, you know, he (laughs) he was telling me what a big a-hole I was and no one on the team liked me. And, you know, I basically told the guy, I said, you know what, let's just decide to talk about this on Monday, right? (laughs) 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 Because you probably have had a few and uh, I'm not in a mindset to kind of listen to this. So let's talk about it Monday, which we did. And, you know, In that guy's situation, we worked through some issues and resolved them, frankly. But yeah, so I would say some of the challenges are just, you know, not everybody's going to be a fan, right? And you got to take some feedback. You got to work through that. Yeah. And you have to take action too, right? And, you know, people like team members expect, you know, if there's something not fixed, you're expected as a leader to take action. And so people watch, right? And I think at times it's, Really, if you're going to take action, have you? do you have all the facts? Can you do it in a following the company process, so to speak, and do it in a respectful fashion? Yeah, that's hard, right? I have a lot of conversations with my wife about, okay, what's next? Or the HR person as well, or the manager I reported to, and what are we going to do here, right? Right. So what would you say is the easiest part? There's got to be an easy part here. Oh, yeah, Paige, <laughs> there is. And I'm glad you asked. I think it is. I know I excelled at recognizing people doing the right thing. And I'll tell you what, we had a program at TransCanada, and it was kind of like a spotlight program. It is essentially, if you see somebody doing something good, significant, of some significance, recognize them for that effort, and you could give them this spotlight award or whatever. And I got really good at recognizing specific behaviors when people were really rocking the program, right? And 
I was just thrilled to catch people doing the right stuff, right? And tell them that. And in unique ways for different people, right? I really got jazzed about that. So there's nothing like spotting integrity. Yeah. I have very fond memories of doing that. And, you know, now either I'm working on my own or I work with a subcontractor that helps me out. And, you know, matter of fact, I recognize some of his work because this guy came to work for me recently and did just an awesome job. And, you know what? Got him some Omaha steak stuff, (laughs) you know, because he was just doing such great work. And it's like, no, you deserve this, man. I'm going to pay you. But yes, you deserve this other stuff. So that's awesome. That's awesome. So if you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? I would say just engage and show sincere interest in what people are doing, right? You know, I think I've heard some of your other guests talk about put down the phone, right? Put down the phone and look at the individual, right? It's be engaging and build relationships with people that you work with to understand, A, their challenges and B, their successes and celebrate those, right? Help them work through the challenges, celebrate the successes. That's excellent advice. What book influenced you the most? Oh, you know what? This was a hard one, right? Because I've got a lot of hard copy books on my bookshelf. I've got a lot of Kindle books. Right now, I'm reading a book, not finished. Right now, I'm reading a book. It's called California Burning. It's by Catherine Blunt. It's the challenges that PG&E, the utility in California, have faced and are facing today with some of the challenges of their grid and fire conditions related to that. They reached back to the San Bruno pipeline incident. And for a period of time, this one entity that I worked for in the Pacific Northwest, they were a wholly owned business unit of PG&E utilities. So I have some kind of interest in that. That's a really excellent book, California Burning. I've read some stuff and my wife and kids will probably laugh about this, but there's a book that I read some time ago, maybe 2015, and then a movie came out. It was called The Long Way Home, and it was by Saru Brealy, I think is the fellow's name. And you might recall this. They made the movie Lion about this. It's the guy from India that as a little kid, he's on the train and he ends up being separated from his family. And it's his story of how he overcomes adversity and all kinds of challenges and uses Google Earth to figure out where he came from. It's a That's real, interesting. It's a real fascinating story. And Paige, I'm not ashamed to say it. It was one that I was crying at the end of the movie. And my, <laughs> you know, I don't think my wife, she didn't have the heart for the movie, but it really moved me. So there's a couple there. There you go. There you go. I think I know what you're talking about. I just can't pinpoint the name of the movie. I know exactly yeah, what you're talking I think about. It's, it's, it's right there. It's simply called Lion. It's this kid and he turns into a young man in Australia and it's his journey to find his family, right? Where he's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is your most used business tool? Oh my goodness. The dreaded business tool. I kind of flip between two of them. One is absolutely needed. It's the day note kind of book that I write. I write stuff only in one place. It's in these day notebooks that I have 21 of them that I've kept over. Oh, your planner. Yeah. I have a couple of those too. Yeah. And so I write everything down in one place. And so that's a real key tool. I use a mechanical pencil so I can erase stuff, right? I'm a, I think I've heard somebody say a perfectionist, you know, like you got to erase it, make sure it's written right. Yeah, it's the story of my life. (laughs) That's a key tool for me. 
And then kind of the double-edged sword tool is LinkedIn, where you can easily spend too much time on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, and you can. It's a great tool, but I have to monitor my time, right? Yeah. So I don't know if this is necessarily applicable, Robert. Who is your most respected competitor? Is that applicable? You know, Paige, I thought about this question, anticipating it. I don't think I have a true competitor. Any of my competitors, they have more bandwidth than I do. They're engaging more clients and all this kind of stuff, and that's fine. I think I don't have a true competitor right now. It might be, in a sense, my own self-doubt whether I can pull stuff off, right? And whether I can hire the right people to work with me. And you have doubts on whether you can do that, right? And so sometimes I'm my own worst enemy. But I don't spend any nights worrying about, well, is that guy going to get the work or am I, right? Because I have enough work as it is and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of goes back to the perfectionism, doesn't it? That self-doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Right there with you. What would you say is your most important lesson learned? Oh, probably to show up daily, to persevere, to just focus and just churn through stuff, learn from mistakes. I mean, that's a kind of a bundle, but just keep moving forward, right? Like it wasn't the greatest time to try and start a business in the height of COVID in June of 2020. Yeah, but you didn't see that coming though. Right. Paige, I just kept moving forward, right? And you just keep exploring opportunities and building a network and you know, perseverance, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Definitely understand. So why do you think your role now is important to the future of the industry? Oh, you know, both in the renewable space and in the traditional energy space of pipeline oil and gas and so on. The ability to engage landowners and stakeholders is really critical, right? And it doesn't matter what kind of nature of industry that you're in, you need to be able to do that effectively. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you have a favorite podcast? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have some in the OGGN network, of course. You and Mark enjoy the ones that you guys put on. Yours is fascinating to pick up some of these tips. And then I have a list of about 13 others in the the renewable space and the energy space that I listen to. Like, I'm embarrassed. You know, I wrote out the list and it was pretty long. There are some that I buy content for and that are real long form. Chris Melder, Energy Transition. I don't always agree with everything the guy says, but it's really well researched. But it's, I would say, of the vast range of podcasts I listen to, I just try and learn, right? Learn and understand. And I listen to some podcasts that are really against traditional oil and gas just to understand how are they coming at this, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Just to see both sides because it's like, okay, well, this is what I think based off of my experience. What do you think off of your experience? And if you're in energy transfer solutions, you should check out Joe Batier on our network. He has some great stuff. Okay. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, if people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about your company, how can they go about doing that? LinkedIn is a great spot. I've recently kind of flipped over to being a creator on LinkedIn as more than just promoting my own services. But LinkedIn is a good spot. All my contact information is there. I'm pretty active. If people are sincere about connecting with me and want to understand my story or services, that's where I can be found. Robert S. Latimer on LinkedIn. And I'll put that in the show notes for everyone. 
you're also a notary and a real estate agent, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I picked up my, in Nebraska to acquire easements for right-of-ways and such, you need to be licensed as a real estate agent. So I picked up that. I'm picking up my Iowa license. A notary goes with that. Awesome. Yeah. It's an important part of the land business, so to speak. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. And make sure to put your website in there too, so people can get a hold of you if they need to. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.